This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I've been asked to speak on the phenomenon of Eucharistic miracles. We're going to investigate this rare but occasional and well-documented phenomenon in Catholic life in a couple of different ways. Basically, what is going on with the Eucharistic miracle is when the sacred species of the Eucharist turns into what looks like human flesh, or if the host bleeds, or the image of a man or a boy is seen in the host. So for those of you who are Catholic, you're probably familiar with what a host normally looks like. I brought examples. These are not consecrated hosts. <laughs> These are unconsecrated bread, pieces of bread, basically. So as you can see, uh, I don't know what your hosts look exactly like here. I did mass uh, here two years ago when I was here, uh, but I presume they look like this. So basically they're white, they're circular, uh, taste like bread, act like bread. Uh, right now they are just bread. They're not the Eucharist. But even when they are the Eucharist, when the priest does do the consecration, you know, if you have received Holy Communion, that it tastes like bread, it chews like bread. If you were to, there's not much of a smell, but if you were to smell it, it would smell like bread. That's normal. With a Eucharistic miracle, something very anormal occurs. Instead of just a white host, for instance, blood appears is one possibility. Or what looks and feels and tastes like bread turns into human flesh. To do our investigation today, we're going to think through this problem with the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, the patron of the Thomistic Institute uh, and of the chapter here at the University of Florida of the Thomistic Institute. We're going to think with St. Thomas about how to understand this phenomenon of Eucharistic miracles. We're going to do so in a couple of steps as broken out on your handout. We're gonna begin with some examples in the course of history. Then we're going to look at what the Eucharist is in general. We'll then look at St. Thomas's analysis of Eucharistic miracles in particular. And then we'll conclude with what St. Thomas would want us to do going forth from here. So what, is, what would St. Thomas say is our takeaway for today? Let's look at some historical examples. The first one that I'll point out today is from the town of Lanciano, which is east of Rome on the far eastern coast of Italy from Rome. In the 8th century, between the year 700 and 750, there was a monk in that town who was apparently a halfway decent monk, but he, he had a particular theological problem he doubted whether the Eucharist is truly the body and blood of Christ. And so he prayed for insight on this, and at a particular Mass, after he said the words of consecration, I'll explain what that means uh, in a short bit, after the priest said the words, this is my body, and this is the chalice of my blood, the bread turned into real flesh, and the wine turned into blood. That miracle of the eighth century was recognized. The priest stopped right away, celebrating mass, showed people what had happened. And those pieces of what was originally bread, but then consecrated Eucharist, they saved that. And a picture of the flesh is on the left uh, series of the pictures that I've given to you. Basically, that's a six centimeter in diameter piece of human flesh. And then the pieces of the, the blood coagulated into five different globules. I did not give you the pictures of those. But those were preserved. And then starting in the 16th century, uh, scientists started to do investigations into it. Now, the first scientific investigations were not all that accurate because 16th century science was 
16th century science. But then, uh, more recently, in the 20th century, there have been scientific investigations starting in 1970 and 71, and then also in 1981. And science being better at this time, they were able to deduce the various um, facts that will follow that I'm going to tell you about what appears to be flesh. So the scientists were able to discover that, yes, those miraculous elements there are true blood and flesh. Indeed, the flesh is made of heart muscle tissue. It belongs to the human species. They could tell the blood type, it's blood type AB. The blood type is identical between the flesh and the blood. They could tell that the flesh is from the inside of the heart which would not have been possible to cut through in medieval medicine. Basically, the, the way that apparently the cardiologists looking at the, the flesh, and they took this a little bit in order to do the scientific investigations, they're able to see that this was cut in such a way that it was basically from the inside of the heart. Which if you think about it, if you don't have kind of microscopic tools, you're not going to be able to do an inside-the-heart cut. Furthermore, the specimens, the flesh and the blood, and particularly the blood, are continuing miracles. Because if you think about it, flesh and blood decay. And putrefaction, decaying flesh, and the smell involved with it, would have happened relatively quickly. But here we have something that has lasted since the 8th century. Furthermore, the scientists could not find any preservative substances, nothing like salts or anything else that would preserve flesh. So it's just continuing. It's a continuing miracle. A further example, but a different kind of example, occurred in Buenos Aires in the 1990s. So the preliminary for these miracles, and there were a couple in the same parish in Buenos Aires. The, the preliminary is that hosts were being found in places where they were not supposed to be found. So the first one was there were some hosts that were found, two hosts that were found on the corporal, the, the, the cloth in front of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle I saw in St. Augustus is in the front and center of the church. So usually if the priests or other ministers are putting the hosts away. There's a little, little kind of ledge there and a cloth in front of it. Well, the idea is to put the Blessed Sacrament, the sacred host, back in the tabernacle. But it seems that two fell out. And they weren't quite sure what had happened. And I'll say what happened, what they did with it afterward. Another case was uh, someone found a host off in a corner in kind of like a dirty area, which suggests that someone went up to receive Holy Communion and didn't consume uh, the sacred species as they were supposed to and disposed of it, threw it away somehow. Okay, so when, when that sort of thing happens, uh, what the priests have to do is they dissolve the host in water. It's a reverent way of uh, basically allowing the what appears to be bread to kind of naturally break down in water. Uh, and then it can be disposed of. When the host, when the what looks like bread, but as we'll talk about, is really not bread, when it, when it breaks down, it's no longer the Eucharist. If it no longer has the look and feel and taste and everything else of bread, it's no longer able to sustain the Eucharistic presence. So that's why we put it in water. Now, normally when this happens, uh, and it's, this is a rare occasion when this happens. Thankfully, people are not desecrating the Eucharist. The most common case where this would happen uh, is sometimes people who are receiving Holy Communion when they're sick, they think that they can eat or drink, but sometimes it's dicey whether they can actually eat or drink, and they, they try to swallow and they can't. So the Eucharist gets spit up. There's no sin involved necessarily in these such cases. If you know St. Therese of Lisieux, a famous saint, in her dying agony in the 19th century, she was dying of tuberculosis. She, was, uh, she tried to receive Holy Communion 
uh, viaticum lacerates and she tried to swallow and she couldn't. So unfortunately she spit up eucharist. What do you do in those cases? You dissolve the eucharist in water. Now normally it breaks up into kind of like a, a white mm, mush. In this case, in Buenos Aires, as you can see in this picture here, the host turned into blood. So when that happened, the priest stopped everything. <laughs> so we got, we got something on our hands here that's quite abnormal. And relatively soon after, uh, they started doing scientific investigations. This proceeded over a number of years. Part of this time, uh, now Pope Francis was Bishop of Buenos Aires, first as an auxiliary bishop and then as Cardinal Archbishop. So he was overseeing some of these investigations. They found in these scientific investigations that that blood is coming from heart muscle tissue. And one of the interesting things that they found is that there are, and I'm not gonna pronounce this right, maybe there's some um, 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 pre-med students or nursing students, leukocytes. Any pre-med leukocytes, does that sound right? Okay, very good, leukocytes. Leukocytes are not normally in the heart, but they leave circulating blood and, they, and, and the head, and they go toward the site of a wound uh, in the body, some sort of trauma. That person's, or, or let's say the blood here has those leukocytes. So it's blood that seems to be coming from a wounded heart. The other strange thing is that normally leukocytes dissolve within a few minutes. And furthermore, they're only found in a specimen, a person, a, an animal that is alive. So here we have a case of what was the accidents, the appearance of bread turning into blood, blood from a wounded heart that somehow is showing signs of being alive, even though there's no connection with directly with the living body. The overall aspect of it too is it's interesting, from some sort of Eucharistic disrespect, so why was that host, for instance, over on the ground in the dust? From a point of disrespect, as we'll talk about, there is now further respect for what the Eucharist is because of this miracle. A last example I'll point out with pictures is from Tixla in Mexico. This miracle occurred in 2006. The basic phenomenon here is that there was uh, Holy Communion being given out at Mass. And a sister, we've got some Holy Sisters here. A sister was giving out Communion uh, at Mass. And all of a sudden, the host, as you see in the picture, the host started bleeding. So they did investigations on this in 2013. They were able to determine that it's human blood. Uh, blood type is AB, they were able to determine. It was probably from a heart muscle. They could tell that it was human, uh, that it has human DNA. They couldn't determine the specific genetic profile. Uh, they could also see that um, there's a superficial blood clot on the top, but Underneath, there is fresh blood that's in contact with the host. So they could tell too that the blood is arising from the host. It's not, they were able to disprove that, for instance, that blood had been splashed on, for instance. They're trying to disprove any fraud. Not that a sister would ever commit fraud. Uh, I mean, no Catholic would think that, but when they're, when they're doing these scientific investigations, they're trying to disprove any sort of possibility of fraud. So they said, no, the blood is coming up from the host itself. Those are three instances of Eucharistic miracles. There are others as well, but we'll suffice with those three. Other uh, things that could be called Eucharistic miracles would be, for instance, healings, physical healings that arise from uh, a person being in the presence of the Eucharist, maybe after they received Holy Communion, or perhaps Mass has been said in their presence. There have been instances of persons being raised from the dead in the lives of the saints. 
uh, with the presence of the Eucharist. Exorcisms sometimes take place through the Eucharist, which could be called a, a miracle. Uh, so for instance, if a place is haunted by a spirit or a demon, a priest can say mass in that uh, place, and oftentimes the problems go away, which seem to result from the fact of mass being offered in that place. Spiritual conversions can take, can take place at mass, but all of those instances that I've just mentioned in terms of healings or exorcistic effects, those are harder to identify exclusively with the Eucharist because probably other sacraments and sacramentals or spiritual practices have also been at play. So probably if, uh, for instance, someone uh, has a, a particular physical ailment, probably there's some other prayers that are also being offered for that person. So can we totally prove that the physical healing occurred because of uh, the Mass? Maybe, maybe not. But these physical instances of physical change occurring to the hosts or to the precious blood that I pointed out, for instance, with those examples of Lanciano and Buenos Aires and Tixla, those are solid and we can inve investigate them scientifically. So those are the ones we're going to focus on tonight. That's the primary um, definition of a Eucharistic miracle. To see how these are miraculous, we want to take a step back and look at what the Eucharist is in general. The Eucharist is a complex sacrament. I'm gonna to try to explain the different dynamics with a chart that I've made up or a diagram at the bottom half of page one of your handouts. Basically, there are three steps that we can use to describe what's going on in the Eucharist. In this, the Eucharist is a mix of the human and the divine. Human elements are taken up by the divine and they are transformed by God's power for his glory and our sanctification. The first step is on the bottom left. We begin what's, with what's called the matter of the sacrament. What are the material elements that are going to be used in the Eucharist? The first element is bread, what I've been referring to often and showing you with a example. In terms of what's going on with bread, there's a particular signification. If you think about what bread means in your life, chances are it means something about physical eating, but hopefully hearty physical eating, not kind of cheap wonder bread, but think of like a good like Panera bread or uh, I don't know, Einstein bagels or pick your, pick your favorite bread company and a good, a good loaf of bread. Medieval monks were able to live on bread. How so? Probably it wasn't American Wonder Bread. They had heartier substance, sustenance to it. That's what we should think about with bread. It's giving us sustenance. It's giving us what we need in order to live and to live well. Furthermore, we have wine. Grape wine. That signifies for us the goodness of drinking, quenching our thirst, but quenching our thirst not just with water, but with a particular sweetness. And for those of us who are old enough to drink alcohol, there is a particular alcoholic happiness within moderation that can arise with wine. And that's good. It's intended by what's involved with wine. Now, those taken together signify for us all of the spiritual health that God wants to give us by our physical health, by our physical health transformed by God's grace. So these separate bread, the separate wine are going to signify for us ultimately the life of Christ poured out for us in his passion on the cross where his blood is separated from his body the sacrifice of his life given for our lives. From the bread and wine, what's called the matter of the sacrament, there needs to be an additional series of words that are pronounced over that bread and wine, and that's what's called the words of consecration. These are the words when the priest holds in his hands in the middle of mass uh, the host, 
and the chalice, and over the host, the priest says in English, uh, this is my body, and in English, excuse me, and with the wine, this is the chalice of my blood. There are some further words before and afterward that are said as well. All of those consecrate the bread and wine so that they are no longer merely bread and wine, but they become what's called the real presence of Jesus Christ. So that gets us to our second step, kind of in the middle of my handout there. This real presence affirms, takes seriously, that this is Jesus. And we do so precisely because Christ told us so, and his scriptures told us so, that this is his body and blood. So we can look at, for instance, John 6, verses 51 and following, where Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give and the life, excuse me, and the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. We know after those words, Jesus' Jewish interlocutors wondered, how is this possible? Is this some sort of sacrilege? Is this cannibalism even? And Jesus says, verses 53 and following, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Where do we get this flesh? Where do we get this blood? It's given to us in the Eucharist. This is my body. This is the chalice of my blood. We see St. Paul talking about this in one of his earliest epistles, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. St. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, is it just bread still? Is it just wine still? St. Paul says no. Listen to what he says in the following verses. Same verses, just continuing on. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. How do we get from bread and wine to body and blood? It's because of that consecration that takes place. St. Paul's affirming that right from the beginning. This is my body. This is the chalice of my blood. Each one of those words is so crucial and it signifies and brings about what is happening in the Eucharist so that when the priest says over the bread, this is my body, it is truly transformative. The words transform to the real presence. Now, how does this make sense? How does what looks like bread, not, how is it not totally just bread anymore? Or what looks like wine and tastes like wine, how is it not just wine anymore? Here we need to make some distinctions. And these distinctions were worked out over hundreds of years to get to where we are understanding better now what's going on in the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, we have the real presence of Jesus mediated by signs that are not in and of themselves Jesus' proper bodily signs. So let's say you're sitting next to a friend person on your left, person on your right. You can look at them now and you can say, hmm, hopefully you're friends. <laughs> now you are because I just said you are. That's the beauty of Catholic communion. <laughs> now, how do you know that your friend or your new friend is actually sitting next to you because of the reality of their physical body, which is a sign to you that that person is there? Okay, so over by the pizza... Right now, there is no person. How do I know that? Because there is no sign to me of a physical body next to the pizza. Instead, I see in front of me the reality of physical bodies, which are the signs to me of persons, human persons. Fantastic. 
Your human body and your soul together constitute who you are as a person, your substance. Each living organism is what could be called philosophically a substance. And we say that within the constriction of your physical body, that is where your substance exists. Now, when you're a little baby, you know, I know, six pounds, eight ounces, they say, so many inches. Is that truly you? Indeed it is. You say, that's Joe, or that's Mary. Now, Joe and Mary grow up, they get bigger. They're not just, well, just say Joe. Uh, Joe is no longer six pounds, eight inches. He's like 200 pounds. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, not six pounds, eight ounces. Excuse me, you know, like six, six pounds. <laughs> Joe is like 200 pounds and, you know, maybe they say five ounces. But they're not worrying about the ounces. They're not worrying about the ounces when you're 200 pounds. Okay, is it the same Joe? It's the same Joe. Whether Joe is, you know, eight pounds or 200 pounds is the same Joe. The same substance. But what has happened? Joe has grown accidentally, not that he like kind of, you know, made an accident just started growing without thinking about it. Oh, it's true. He, he did just grow without thinking about it. But he grew in ways that do not involve a substantial change, but a change in his dimensions. But you can still tell that's Joe instead of Frank or Julie. Again, because of the external signs pointing to the internal reality of who Joe is compared to who Julie is. Okay, so we've got all the, we just did, we just did a lot of philosophy very easily. Wasn't that great? You can go tell that to your philosophy professor on campus. <laughs> okay, so what's happening with the Eucharist and the real presence? We have the substantial presence of Jesus that is presented as given to us truly through signs that are different than the normal human signs we expect with the human substance. Because normally we don't think of a human person mediated through what looks like bread or wine. Indeed, we also affirm the truth of the ascension of Jesus. Remember, scriptures revealed to us, 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven. Jesus lives now in heaven eternally. So how can we say that Jesus is alive here on earth in the Eucharist? It's because we have a substantial presence that is, that is given to us in signs, physical signs, that are different than the normal human physical dimension of height, weight, girth. I think that's it. This real presence is an objective truth regardless of our subjective knowledge or faith in that truth. So let's say, for instance, that someone comes along who is not a believing Catholic. Does the Eucharist remain the Eucharist? Does Jesus fly away if a dog starts coming toward the tabernacle? Let's say you didn't have a, a nice, wonderful tabernacle. Let's say you had an old medieval tabernacle that didn't necessarily have all the bells and whistles that yours does. Well, yours doesn't have bells and whistles either, but just an older style that perhaps has a hole in it. Let's say an ant starts creeping into the tabernacle. Does Jesus fly away if the ant is going to start munching on the sacred host? No. The Eucharistic presence is a stable presence, and it's objective, regardless of our subjective reaction. Basically, what has happened is Jesus is present because he has set up the institutional factors to make it happen. He has ordained priests. He said that the priests say these words, we get the Eucharist. Lastly, there is 
a grace that is given in the Eucharist. And that's the third step of the Eucharist, the top right of your handout. The Eucharist gives us grace through spiritual nourishment by union with Jesus and the members of his body, the church. These uh, graces are for the building up of our lives as Christians. So the Eucharist, because we are in contact with Jesus, builds us up in charity. It builds us up to ward off sin. So for instance, strength against temptation. For instance, yesterday we had Ash Wednesday. Catholics are not supposed to eat meat on Ash Wednesday. Let's say Albert E. Gator was tempted to have a chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A on Ash Wednesday, but because he had received Holy Communion that morning, he was given the strength to avoid uh, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Chick-fil-A may be closed on Sundays, but they're not closed on Ash Wednesday, so Albert E. Gator had to depend upon that grace. Hopefully he did. Elsie went to confession today. I saw confessions were going on wonderfully in your church today. Or Albert, Alberta Gator, Alberta Gator. It's not just Albert Gator that sins. <laughs> what if Alberta, Alberta, I remember hearing about top 10 means for swampy teens. Is that right? To, or, uh, so close, not quite. Swampy, swampy means swampy, swampy means for top ten public teams. Okay, so so Alberta is tempted to waste time looking at the memes instead of doing her homework. Okay, so we need grace, we need nourishment in order to stay on the straight path, and the Eucharist, those graces, those graces of spiritual nourishment. Help us to walk the straight path. The goal is heaven. We need food. We need strength, nourishment to get to heaven. That's what the Eucharist gives us. That's the whole point of the effects of Eucharist. Now, it also can remit light sins. It can help us do charitable actions. It can give us physical strength for earthly sacrifice. It can give us spiritual glory in heaven. It even has the effect of resurrecting our bodies in heaven. So lots of great effects of the Eucharist. We could think, and St. Thomas wonders, should we consider the Eucharist itself as a miracle? Usually we think of a miracle as something singular, something that does not happen often. And in that respect, the Eucharistic event doesn't seem very miraculous because Mass may, he may happen here at St. Augustine's once a day, twice a day. It's on a cycle. You can know to show up at you know, 5 in the evening, 7 p.m., noon, probably not like 7 a.m. Mass. Probably not. Okay, but you know on a regular cycle, uh, you show up at this time of the day, the Eucharist is going to take place. A transformation that you don't find in one of the beautiful quads here on campus. So that could seem rather dynamic, rather divine. St. Thomas indeed affirms that the Eucharist is a miracle. He says, quote, an unaccustomed thing is said to be a miracle because it is contrary to the accustomed course of nature, even if it is repeated daily. As the transubstantiation of bread into the body of Christ is repeated daily, but does not cease to be a miracle. So, even though a miracle is usually rare, the more important thing is that it involves something that is contrary to the normal course of nature. Bread and wine do not have a natural orientation toward being transformed into the Eucharist, they have an openness to being transformed into the Eucharist. But normally on its own, a piece of bread doesn't just kind of pop into being the Eucharist. There's something extraordinary going on there. A further question we should ask very briefly is why do we have the real presence of the Eucharist through 
signs, signs like bread and wine. What looks like bread and wine, but has transformed so that even though the outward appearance, the accidents, the dimensions are bread and wine, the underlying substance is the body and blood of Christ. Why do we have the Eucharist through signs? Thomas gives us three reasons. Three reasons. First off, so that we're not committing a form of cannibalism. We are not eating flesh as flesh is normally seen when you're having a chicken sandwich. This aids Christians' ability to receive Christ in Holy Communion. So, receiving Holy Communion, yes, is receiving the body and blood of Christ, but it's not given to us in the form of physical flesh as we normally have physical flesh. So, Christians are not cannibals. This leads to a second reason, St. Thomas says we have these Eucharistic signs. It's because it protects us from embarrassment against non-believers who could accuse us of being cannibals. Indeed, non-Christians in the early centuries of the church accused Christians of being cannibals because of the Eucharist. They knew Christians said that they received the body and blood of Christ. They said, you're cannibals. Christians said, no, we're not. Lastly, St. Thomas says that we are given the real presence through science in order to force our faith to grow. Because what looks like bread and wine, we believe in faith, is no longer simple bread and wine. Indeed, it's not bread and wine at all. The substance of bread has been replaced, transformed, into the substance of Christ's body, and the substance of wine has been transformed into the substance of Christ's blood. So there is no deception in the Eucharist. The senses truly and rightly see what look like the accidents, the exteriors of bread or wine. But faith also is able to see, our eyes of faith are able to see that there is the presence, the substantial presence of the body and blood of Christ. And because the body and blood of Christ is now in union, is living with the entirety of Christ, we have what the Council of Trent called the body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ, given to us in the Eucharist. So even though our subjective realization of all this is not the defining factor in saying what is the Eucharist or what is not, as I put at the bottom of page one, we can see this, Eucharist dynamic, this Eucharistic dynamic through the virtue of faith, through the power of faith. Let's now look at St. Thomas's analysis of these Eucharistic miracles. So, for instance, how can there be blood, physical blood, on a host? What's going on there? We need to keep a couple of data points in mind. First off, again, we remember that the Eucharist, the real presence, is an objective truth apart from the subjective realization of participants and bystanders. Second, the stability of the real presence is limited only by the instability of the physical elements. So if the physical elements break apart, no more Eucharist. We also remember that over the course of history, when these Eucharistic miracles have happened, people have worshipped these miracles, recognizing in faith that this is the body and blood of Christ. When Thomas asks the question, as I put on your handout there in the Summa Theologiae, whether Christ's body is truly there when flesh or child appears miraculously in the sacrament, Thomas gives two possible reasons of what's going on here. First off, he says God could transform or God could put within our vision a certain miraculous form. He could basically adjust our eyesight to have a kind of miraculous vision. But the vision remains just in the eyes of the beholder. It's not something that's truly present in reality exterior to the person looking. So, for instance, one could be just, you know, 
in a regular room and have a, a vision, let's say, of the Blessed Virgin Mary or St. Augustine. St. Thomas comes to visit us to teach us what we need to learn for tomorrow's exam. That's happened in the lives of saints. Pray to your favorite saint to you know, show up and <laughs> tell you how to do well uh, on your exam. But also, that saint will probably tell you to study as well. Okay, so that's the first possibility. God could adjust our vision, give us a miraculous vision that is not manifested as well, that's not actually taking place in reality. That's a purely subjective miracle. The second possibility is what we see in those pictures that I gave to you. The second possibility is, as he says in the quotation I gave to you, not merely by a change wrought in the beholders, but by an appearance which really exists outwardly. So this is when the physical matter has been changed. So not just the exterior of what appears, what used to be bread, but now blood or flesh. This is not a change in the Eucharist's real presence. The real presence is still there, whether or not we've got miraculous flesh that's there or miraculous blood that's there. The real presence is a stable presence so long as we have those dimensions still there, those physical dimensions. By the fact that we have a different kind of Eucharist that's being presented in a Eucharistic miracle, does that mean that there's any sort of, um, let's say, um, one is better than the other? Is it better to have uh, a, a host that has blood oozing from it or to have a regular host that's just plain white still? with no blood oozing from it. In terms of the central mystery, the central mystery is the real presence, the substantial presence of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's the key thing. So in terms of these exterior signs, they don't change the underlying reality. What they do change, though, St. Thomas says, is our subjective appreciation of the reality, of the underlying truth that Christ is really present. So either sign is getting to the central truth that we want to get to, which is Jesus, the substantial presence of Jesus. There is no simulation again in the Eucharist. There's no deception in the Eucharist. Either sign works. What looks like bread, that is actually an efficacious sign, a real presence of Jesus, or what looks like Flesh. In terms of why we have these miracles, St. Thomas says that they build up or they correct our Eucharistic faith. So, for instance, in the case of that first miracle I talked about, Lanciano, the priest who doubted, the monk who doubted the truth of the real presence, chances are he no longer doubted after that miracle occurred. That was the point for that priest, but also for anyone else who has since been able to see those relics, that Eucharistic miracle. You can still see it in Lanciano, Italy. What do we do with these Eucharistic miracles? We can look at St. Thomas's Eucharistic devotion in order to conclude our talk this evening. In other words, what would St. Thomas recommend to Catholic gators? Basically, a Eucharistic miracle is just highlighting the fact of the Eucharist in general. So to explain what our takeaway should be, we really need to look at why the Lord instituted the Eucharist in the first place. St. Thomas gives three reasons. I'm going to give them to you and also expand upon them with respect to Eucharistic miracles and what Perhaps St. Thomas would say to Catholic gators. First off, the Eucharist is for the building up of our faith. It's fascinating how God still makes transubstantiation occur, even 
even in the case of that doubting monk in Lanciano. Even though he probably had some you know, theological problems he needed to work out with St. Thomas and other good theologians, God still worked his miracle of Eucharistic transformation through him. So even though there are, let's just say, bozo priests who need to know their theology a bit better, it happens, unfortunately. God still works through them. God works fantastic things through flawed human instruments. And you know what? God can do fantastic things with all of us who are flawed, imperfect human instruments, whether we're priests or not. Furthermore, probably here in Central Florida, there are some non-Catholics who are roaming around. And probably they have some beliefs against the Eucharist, against the truth of the Eucharist. They say, Eucharist, that's Catholic mumbo-jumbo. Hocus-pocus, false. Well, the example of a Eucharistic miracle can help show us and them, no, this is Jesus. So the Eucharist can build us up in faith, and these Eucharistic miracles can build us up in the proclamation of our Eucharistic faith to others. Secondly, the Eucharist and Eucharistic miracles can build us up in the love of Christ and in the friendship of Christ. We could ask ourselves, why did Christ give us the Eucharist in the first place? My favorite passage in the entire Summa Theologiae of St. Thomas is the following passage that St. Thomas gives when he's talking about the Eucharist. He says that the truth that the Eucharist is Christ's true body and blood and not just a figure, quote, belongs to Christ's love out of which for our salvation he assumed a true body of our nature. And because it is a special feature of friendship to live together with friends, as the philosopher Aristotle says, he promises us his bodily presence as a reward, saying, where the body is, there shall the eagles be gathered together. Where are the eagles? We see with our eagle eyes, the body. Our sharp eyes, we see the body of Christ. We want to be there around Christ. Yet meanwhile, in our pilgrimage, he does not deprive us of his bodily presence, but unites us with himself in the sacrament through the truth of his body and blood. Hence he says, he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Hence this sacrament is the sign of supreme charity and the uplifter of our hope from such familiar union of Christ with us. A Zoom conversation is better than no conversation, Frankly, we've all learned over the last two years that a Zoom conversation, a Zoom party, a Zoom happy hour is kind of a, a poor substitute for a real party, a real time physically with your friends, a real physical happy hour or happy like, you know, juice hour or whatever, <laughs> depending upon your age and whatever else. I'm not going to get in trouble here. So, okay, what do we think about this? Christ gives us the Eucharist for friendship. The Eucharistic miracles are for friendship, friendship with Christ. I think St. Thomas would say that that's also good for Catholic leaders to think about. We've just started Lent. Lent is about communion. We repent from our sins so we can be more fully united with Christ. We also think, too, we talk about our first Holy Communion. Our first Holy Communion should not be our last Holy Communion. Every communion should be holy, and indeed should be holier. More and more friendship. The more time you spend with your friends, especially a good friend, the better the friendship gets. That's what Christ wants to give to us in his physical presence of the Eucharist. Not a Zoom presence, not just spiritual. That's good. Jesus does have spiritual presence with us. He also gives us his physical presence continuing in the Eucharist. Lastly, the Eucharist is for the perfection of God's revelation and our religion. St. Thomas says that we have the perfection of everything God wants to give to us in the Eucharist. We've got connection with God through Christ. From that, everything has been revealed to us. All truth has been revealed to us. Christ said, I am the way and the truth and the life. We've got that in the Eucharist. From that, 
we can be holy and worship God, which is the whole point of life. What is heaven going to be about? Worshiping God, enjoying the worship of God, doing that with our friends, the saints. In terms of this Eucharistic uh, life, there is a, a virtue, set of virtues, that's called devotion and reverence that go along with that. Reverence for God, worship of God. We see this lived in the lives of the saints here on earth. Note how the saints have grown in their Eucharistic devotion over the ages and even over the course of history. So how, for instance, the church has developed what's called Eucharistic adoration, how we reverence, worship, the Eucharistic presence behind a piece of glass, for instance, in the monstrance. I noticed it was taking place this afternoon in the church. Those are ways that we're able to worship God and be sanctified ourselves. That is another reason why Christ gave us these Eucharistic miracles, to build up that reverence, to build up that devotion, which is itself life-giving to us. A Eucharistic miracle is a divine invitation to a greater faith, hope, and charity, to response to an objective mystery, but a response that has a personal, subjective participation. The more important miracle, the more important event, is the transformation of ordinary bread, ordinary wine, to the body and blood of Christ. That presence that is the real presence of Christ, the true presence of Christ. This Eucharistic miracle occurs every time that Mass is celebrated. And this miracle of transubstantiation is prolonged in the Blessed Sacrament that is reserved for our prayer and our adoration in the tabernacle. These Eucharistic miracles we've looked at tonight confirm what Christ and St. Paul told us. In the Eucharist, what looks like bread and wine have been transformed into the true signs of the real, physical, substantial presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And to him be all glory, now and forever. Amen. Amen.